0: this guy, Stuart Sutcliffe, who used to be in the art college with John. When we used to do the uh, art college dances, then he used to always be hanging about with us.
1: Stuart was John's friend, mainly, from art college. Stuart was a very good painter. We were all slightly jealous of John's friendship. John being a little bit older, certainly than me, certainly than George. He was a little bit, you know... He wanted to sit next to him on a bus and stuff, like, he's the older fellow, you know, it's just the, the way it was. Now, so when, so when Stuart came in, it was a little bit of a sort of, he was sort of taking a little bit of that position away from us. We sort of had to take a little bit of a um, back seat.
0: Later, Stewart's the famous stories where he sold his painting to John Moore exhibition or something like that.
1: So the question was, what do you do with 75 quid? So we all reminded him over a coffee that that was just about what Hoffner bases cost. <laughs> Funny you should win that
0: amount, Stu. We talked him into buying a bass guitar and taught him a few 12-bar tunes.
1: So he bought big Hoffner that kind of dwarfed him, really, because he wasn't that big. It was this massive, big Hoffner. Now, the trouble was, he could not play.
0: Stu couldn't play bass, and he had his back to it. That's all story. Occasionally, it was a bit embarrassing he didn't... You know, if he had a lot of changes to it, he was... But he knew that, too. That's why, you know, he was never really that at ease being in the band. But it was better to have a bass player who um, couldn't play than to not have a bass player at all. My name's Eric Taras.
2: I'm Richard Busco. The
0: Beatles make it.
2: playing this music because as far as I know, this is all we've got of the Beatles with Stuart Sutcliffe playing bass.
3: Yeah, as we are recording this, we are one day past the 60th anniversary of Stuart's death. And we were both thinking about the impact this young man uh, who lived such a short time had on the greatest band of all time.
2: Yeah, this is actually about not just the impact that Stuart Sutcliffe had on the Beatles but also what he brings to the story so what does he represent to fans and what are the elements that he adds to the Beatles story as I myself posted on social media I described him as the Beatles diminutive co-founder king of call cool, man of mystery abstract artist fragile angel tragic hero I
3: love that summation it's so wonderful and interesting and befitting of this mystery man. He's got such a loud voice in the Beatles' history, and we've never heard it. What he brings to the fans is multi-leveled. I think there's a tragedy in that. I don't, oh, yeah. I, I think the tragedy, not just of the, his his incredibly short life. Um, I think that he gets a lot of short shrift, as they say. Um, people seem to harp on this idea that he was just a terrible musician and just a poser, but he was so much more than that. And I think that uh, certainly I've learned a lot over the years from talking to people who knew him. I was friends with his sister and uh, his youngest sister. I never met Joyce. Um,
2: oh, so you, you met
3: Pauline? Yeah, Pauline was the one I knew.
2: Yeah, and she's the culprit Well, <laughs> you know, for a lot of stuff. I mean, it, you know, it's Pauline who came up with the hackneyed story that it was a kick from John that led to Stuart's. Eventual brain hemorrhage, which is an absolutely terrible thing to say, with you know no nothing to substantiate it at all. So you know it's it's a a slur on another dead person who you can't libel. Yes, and she came up with that story later on as well. It's not like yes that's where it began, and and then there was also roughly ten years ago a recording of Love Me Tender, that's been completely proven to not be Stuart Sutcliffe. And yet she was, you know, promoting that story as well.
3: I think there was a lot of things getting to know her over the years. It's so interesting that by the time she really turned very bitter, I did not know Pauline. Um, You know, we fell out of contact the last few years of her life. She was nothing but generous and sweet. She did have anger issues about the Beatles. There's, There's for certain. I remember her telling me little stories about, you know, the negotiations during the anthology project you know Stuart was you know they paid her you know as the estate um, you know royalty money and she said you know not as much as you think and certainly Pete didn't get as much as was, has been written about um, mm. you know she' was very adamant about that kind of thing but may she, well be true but she um, she would tell me these little stories you know talking about she had seen Paul McCartney whatever and and I'd be like oh, that must be amazing now and she goes no she goes I I can't see I can't unsee him sitting in my mother's kitchen you know having a cup of tea with with us and with Stuart uh, you, you know so I just had a different view of her she was very 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 kind to me and she never she did talk about the incident of Stuart getting kicked in the head but the way she told the story to me it was that John and Stuart were attacked together. In other words, other people were kicking, you know, had Stuart down in Right,
2: him. right. So for her to revise that story based on who knows, you know, where she got that from is just terrible.
3: I, people get angry I, and people say crazy things. And
2: well, say, you know. yeah, but get angry, say crazy things that actually accuse ostensibly an innocent person of murder yeah or manslaughter you know well it can't
3: be murder if you die a couple years later you know what i mean it's still it was nasty why she was angry at lenin's memory at this point who knows i you know she certainly never brought it up i I don't
2: know if she was so much angry at his memory as basically just trying to keep the attention going you know come up with a new angle
3: yes i think that i think there's a lot of that in there and one thing she did say, because she was herself gay, she always, you know, brought up that, oh, she she felt that John and Stu had, um, uh, you know, a sexual affair at some point. Yeah,
2: she felt, right? Now, Yes. again, yes. Yeah.
3: Once again, this was her inter- – you know, sometimes people see themselves reflected in everybody. And, you know, so she didn't seem to have a whole lot of proof about it. She just sort of said – I was like, well, well, what makes you think, did any, either one of them talk about it? I said, no, 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 just, just the way they were, were around each other, you could kind of sense something. And I said, well, I, I don't know, I, maybe,
2: who knows? Well, enough of the bullshit there, right? You know, let's get to the main thing here, which is what did Stuart bring to the Beatles? And the, one of the first things, he was a co-founder, not of the Quarrymen, but of the Quarrymen that morphed into the Beatles because, as far as we know, It was him with John who contrived the name. Possibly Stuart came up with the idea of Beatles with two E's as a play on crickets, and then John, of course, gave it that twist.
0: There's always been stories on who invented the name, and there's the versions about how we wanted it to, like the crickets and this sort of thing, but I always got the impression when they came that John and Stuart were together that that night of the next morning when it came out, we've got a good name. And then in years following, he was always taken with John thought of the name. But I would say that Stuart certainly had a, a lot to do with it.
3: I think that uh, we can go back even a little further, uh, because I think it, it goes before. The, there's a couple of events ahead of that that I yeah. think really, uh, you know, if we're going to talk about his complete impact. One of the things that interests me about him is had he stayed with the band, he would have been the eldest Beatle, because Stuart was born in Glasgow and on June twenty third, 1940. Glasgow, Eric. Glasgow. What did I say? Ed- no, Edinburgh. I'm, a, I'm sorry. I got a, No, no, I, I was. We we're both wrong. It's
2: Edinburgh. You, he was born in Edinburgh. You mean, yeah, Edinburgh, but yeah. it would have been Glasgow, not Glasgow. What, not Glasgow? Like, mo- like Moscow and Moscow. You mean you don't say Moscow?
3: Never mind. I can sense there's an edit coming up there. <laughs> you know, when you think of, uh, when you really do a dive into it, Uh, Stewart was a crucial member of the Beatles. Yeah, he's fascinating to me on so many levels. But I wonder if the whole Alan Williams management thing came through Stewart because he and Stewart was hired by Alan. You know, when he opened his first club, the Jacaranda. Mm. Did I pronounce that right?
2: (laughs) Yes, you did actually. Not the Jacaranda the jacaranda well like he was pastor, he was
3: uh, he, it was him and uh, his roommate uh, Rod Murray I think were the two that were hired to paint the walls of the jacaranda and yeah. obviously that was a meeting place for the Beatles and uh, as young people you know getting introduced to Alan Williams I think it's worthy of note that while the quarrymen were still together and, and Stuart was not part of the quarrymen he helped get them some gigs at parties Yep, he did. You know, to keep them going. He was a great believer in them and a supporter of them. And one of his friends, one of Stewart's friends at college, uh, characterized him as always having understood the value of image. And I think that plays an incredible role. I think he oh, yeah. definitely brought that to the Beatles because in some of the letters that happened between Hamburg, you know, later on, he was still kind of suggesting. And even though he was no longer in the band after 1961, he was still friends and concerned about them and generating ideas. And I honestly think he would have come back into the orbit somehow as a collaborator as things, as their horizons started to widen, especially post-touring years, you know? As you said,
2: you know, there are so many levels to this in terms of what he brings. I mean, one of the first things was, you know, this hookup at Art College with Lennon and That's been well written about, okay, you know, and discussed about that relationship and what they saw in each other, that they admired things in each other that each of them felt that they didn't possess. Yeah. And he was a true artist. I mean, John Lennon is not going to hook up with some really average painter, is he, right? None of the Beatles are. You know, they're going to be seeking out people on their kind of level with their kind of insight or more.
3: I would say to people, too, you and I have spoken about this privately, The couple of times in my life I was been able to stand in front of actual paintings of Stuart Suckcoliffs, especially that final period as he's entering his his final months of life. They do not reproduce well on a two dimensional screen or in print. They must be seen. They are absolutely astoundingly mature paintings for a twenty year old kid. I mean, I went to art college, so I can tell you I was at you know, painting is a lot like songwriting. Uh, Elvis Costello would say you have to write 100 bad songs before you get a good one. And, uh, and uh, you know, that's, the same is true with painting. You've got to make about 100 bad paintings. This guy, I don't think he ever made a bad painting. You know, there's a couple of weak ones at the beginning where he's finding his footing. But the, his, his rapid maturity, I'm sure, was something that Lenin aspired to. In other words, well, he's, he's the, the visual guy, the painter guy. I guess I have to do that with words and music.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, that's to said, what they admired in each other in the creative sense. But also, you know, there's that whole vulnerability with Stuart that we perceive. Of course, this man of mystery who we still haven't heard his voice. We may never do. But who knows, Eric, you may turn up a tape.
3: That You know, <laughs> I'm the Sultan of Segway here. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because the thing I have been looking for actively. And if any of you folks out there even have an inkling about this Stewart, interestingly enough, for being the silent Beatle, as it were, the one we've never heard his voice, he was the first Beatle to be on any type of media. And that came on April 3rd, 1957. Stewart and uh, Rod Murray and a bunch of guys from the art college ended up going over to a a, a filming, taping of an ITV show hosted by Spike Milligan called Youth Wants to Know. And the television show was ostensibly about, uh, was there a connection between art and Uh, comedy and surrealist art and Stuart uh, the audience were all artists and art students so they were submitting questions and they liked Stuart's questions so much he was the only guy that got to ask two on camera so uh, I have been looking for that for years folks if any of you have an inkling or if any of you have an audio recording of this or know
2: of one I will make it worth your while It could easily have been, right, and I think maybe a lot of people may think that way or even subconsciously perceive him that way, that he's just this cool-looking guy from early in the story and, you know, lucky him that in death it made him famous. I think, you know, there's a lot of evidence. I'm no art expert at all, um, but, you know, based on the assessments of art experts and everything that's been said about him, it all points towards a really promising career. This was a serious artist he was on the level with the rest of the Beatles, maybe not musically, but in his own way. And so we're not overplaying it here.
3: No, we're not. There's other things besides the image making, besides the inspiration. There's some real physical, tangible things that if it wasn't for Stu, maybe the Beatles don't happen. One of the very first important ones is it was Stu who invited John to live at Gambier Terrace and get out of Mimi's house. You yeah. know, in, in you know, Christmas time nineteen fifty-nine. And that was a huge step, because I think to stay at Mimi's place, it was starting to hinder, you know, he's got this voice in his ear all day that he's wasting his time, and a guitar's all right, but you got to get a real job. And I think that it was crucial that John leave when he did. Uh, it's interesting that Stewart was the more mature that Stuart left left home at sixteen to start, you know, living yeah. in his own when he was at art college. And he was a year ahead of John at Art College, and it was partially because of S- Stewart was the star of the school. Everybody knew he was the best. When they entered the John Moores thing in, in September, I think of '59, and he was the one famously winning the 60 pounds and buying, you know, getting hustled into the band by Lennon. Um, so that's a step that that's a very you know a big uh, part of the impact of Stewart. Also, the first national press that any Beatles ever received, Stewart was involved in that, which is... Do you remember what that was in 1960?
2: Oh, yeah, with this beatnik horror.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You know, that would have been a pretty decent
2: name for (laughs) the beatnik horror. Fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, with a a photo of Alan Williams in the absolutely decrepit Gambia Terrace flat, rumored that there's John in the photo. I'm not so sure about that, but still, what a thing.
3: Yeah, Stu and Paul were kind of elected to... Uh, they they had no real manager at the time, so Stu and Paul elected to try to get gigs through writing letters to different impresarios. I guess they called them in those days. And it was right. uh, it was Stu's uh, letter to a holiday camp guy booking agent that the name Beatles with ALS right yeah uh, was used, and he was signed the the letter as manager of the Beatles. So whether that was just uh, for show. Or or was he actually for an hour or two or whatever, or a day or a week? Maybe he was the manager of the Beatles for a week, you know, if he was writing the. Yeah, I, I don't
2: know if he was the manager. It's more a case of I'll handle this, right? Most likely in a group. Yeah. But let's look at things from the fan perspective, okay? Or the, the public perspective, let's say. What we've got are the visuals, the photos, no real footage. Yeah. Audio-wise, again, virtually nothing. The McCartney home rehearsal from the spring or summer of 1960.
3: Which Um, is pretty bad.
2: Right, right. So, again, there's nothing of great worth there in terms of assessing Stuart Sutcliffe. But what we've got are these incredible visuals of him. And also the man of mystery. You know, how did he exactly die? You know, what caused the brain hemorrhage? And then the tragic hero, right? You know, he he brings this sort of darkness, this tragedy to the Beatles story from before they're famous, right? On the eve of their national fame, okay? Just a few months before the release of Love Me Do.
3: Another thing to look at in Stewart is he—it is basically the John and Yoko story on fast forward. It's um, you know incredibly fast forward. So here's a guy that only lives to be 21. He knows very well that the Beatles are going to be a success, but he chooses to be with this woman he's in love with, and to go and to just do his art and give up on the greatest ride anybody could ever have had. And I think that's pretty impactful. What we have is, as you say, incredible images, most of which supplied by his girlfriend, Ostrid. And I think she was photographing the Beatles before they became romantically involved, but certainly she stayed involved and brought the exes in to be supportive and once again generate this amazing imagery, which influenced their look down the line. And and he continued to through letters. We also have letters uh, that he would draw in and notes left behind where he's still suggesting... And promoting them yeah he brought in a look so his that whole James Dean look thing with the glasses and the and the hair was apparently modeled after this actor whose name I cannot pronounce Polish actor who Stu became infatuated with and he was called the Polish James Dean I cannot even begin to pronounce oh
2: you mean Zbigniew Sibolski tight <laughs> And our Polish listeners, oh, God, we mostly lost them now.
3: Your Polish is almost as good as my French, you know. Yeah, just saying.
2: almost, Eric. That's right. Yeah. You see the photo of Stuart with the group at one of the bars where they're all sitting there. And he's just got regular horn rim glasses on. Yeah. With the high hair. And he's a little guy. Even sitting down, you can see he's shorter than the rest of them. And he just looks really pretty nerdy. And it's like, all it takes is stick the shades on, right? Take the glasses away, stick the shades on, same hair, and suddenly he just looks super cool. Yeah. So that's the power of Ray-Bans or whatever.
3: Well, the fact that he knew that. The fa- and and I, I guess the thing was with him, I think that he had uh, prescription ones. I seem to remember reading that they were either prescription ones or that or the, the, the dark lens went over the glasses, the regular glasses so he could actually see, unlike Lennon, who was, you know, perfectly willing to just stagger around (laughs)
2: blind. Yeah, but there's also, and that's something that Astrid obviously, you know, being a fantastic photographer and being in love with him, right, being connected to him in that way as a sort of soulmate, she picked up on on that vulnerability. I mean, I suppose everyone picked up on it, but she brought it out in the photos in, in a very subtle, nuanced way. As the photography
3: went on, too, you could see him getting more and more ill. I think he was—he was a slight person. You know, I always thought he was like five four. I looked it up according to the records I could see. He was five seven. He doesn't seem that tall to me, though.
2: Okay, yeah, because like Ringo, obviously he's not in the same photos. I mean, he's five eight, and the other Beatles are five eleven.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so he was. I mean, always, you know, noticeably shorter, and uh, you know. Very thin, apparently lifelong thin. He did look very skinny in all the pictures I've
2: seen. But even when he had his hair restyled, it's like his passport photo. He looks so damn cool, doesn't he?
3: He was far and away the best looking. I know people. The legend was Pete Best was the best looking, and Pete was a very good looking guy as a kid.
2: Well, some would say Paul was.
3: Well, I think Paul became the you know the darling of the of the group uh, because he was probably. Yeah, probably. But I, I think Stu would have given him a run for his money. We, we have no idea what Stu would have looked like as an older guy. I mean, he looked great at 21, for sure. Um, and maybe that was part of... I think there was multiple reasons why Stuart was a target for Paul. I think Paul was very jealous of the relationship. You know, he was... Stuart was older, as John was older than, than Paul. But yeah. Stuart was... You know, John looked up to Stuart. I'm not so sure he ever looked up to Paul, he looked across to Paul.
2: Fair point. I I don't know. I think they each looked up to each other as well. You know, it had to be a mutual admiration society.
3: I wonder, because later on in life, I'm thinking of one of the very last interviews with John. He's sitting in uh, the record plant East or whatever, and they're mixing the Star Wars soundtrack while he's being interviewed. And he's kind of like, are you impressed with your brother? You know, it was like, even at that late stage... Maybe it was retro history on John's part, but he—he he, he, to me, he was always kind of, yeah, he's my equal.
2: Yeah, but come on. You know, A, John was famous within the group for being sort of sparing with giving credit where it was due. Um, and certainly in public, post Beatles, he was going to play any of that down. But from everything I've been told, and if you just even observe his behavior, even just the fact that he was still so engaged in putting Paul down in interviews when they were talking privately on the phone okay um, the fact that he felt the need to do that that's the competitive edge and he wouldn't be competing i think purely with an equal i think it's someone who he looks at who's you know got more commercial success than him and so on and so forth right you know yeah. in, in the late 70s so i as i said and and then you've got Paul talking about John to Rolling Stone in the eighties as our own little Elvis within the group.
3: Yeah, it just seems interesting to me that only George was the only one I can think of in the within the band that publicly in song said I always looked up to you. Yeah. So I like I say I don't see anyone else saying that and within the band except it was ceiling was common knowledge and I I remember there's a quote somewhere where John said that before he looked to Paul for approval, he looked to Stu in the earlier days. And if Stu told him something was cool or good, then he believed him.
2: Well those letters between them that have been published. Especially you know John's letters to him are so introspective and heartfelt.
3: And there's one thing that really gets overlooked about what how the biggest, biggest, biggest impact Stewart had on the Beatles and it's under everybody's nose and nobody ever talks about it. So I'm going to give you a chance. What, in your opinion, is the biggest impact Stewart had
2: on the Beatles? By quitting the band, Paul had to take over on bass.
3: Exactly right. I mean, how monumental is that?
2: I don't know. You know, if Stuart had never been in the Beatles, I don't know that necessarily would have meant that Paul would have ended up on bass. It was more a case of when it happened and, you know, that they were left in the lurch.
3: But I think that's part of the story, if you know what I mean. No, I mean, just probably, the idea that he was sure. inserted there. I don't think he would have been the bassist. I think they would have recruited a bassist because that's what the... Mm. The Beatles yeah. only developed one player from what I can tell, and that one was, was Stewart. The only, he's the only guy that came in with no zero chops, as uh, Ray Manzarek would have said. Mm. And so when they kicked Pete out, they made it their business to get the best guy they possibly could, the best drummer. That they possibly yeah. could have had contact with, and they knew exactly who it was, and they were right. It just so happened he also became a great Beatle. Yeah. But at the time, I think they were going for the most professional. So they, they recruited talent as opposed to saying, well, this guy's pretty good. And if he plays with us, we can teach him. You know, we're all frustrated drummers. We can just teach him how to do what we want. And uh, instead, they went with, uh, you know, the pro. So I think that's what they would have done.
2: I mean, putting Stuart into the band was a different direction for John, right? Because if you think back, he brings in Paul because, as he says, he can improve the band. They bring in George because he can improve the band. They don't bring in Stuart for that reason. No,
3: they bring in Stuart because there was something about this guy and what he brought, his ideas, his his unmistakable talent as an image maker. And I still think that John, somewhere in the back of his mind, knew that rock and roll was an art form even if he wasn't articulating it at that time and that the horizon is going to expand and you need a guy like this
2: yeah but also it has to be the visuals right surely that was the big thing for them you know just even if that guy's turning his back to the audience he looks cool
3: well i think that's that's part of his coolness i mean whether he was truly uh afraid to f- to face uh, the crowd because he's fumbling a little bit maybe he was but i've seen other pictures where stewart has not got his back
2: well you know he's never been able to speak for himself right so you know we're only getting it from them and as we know it's the mood they're in when they say a certain thing or they're just not thinking too much about it how george and john framed get back and how different that's turned out to be yeah you know the get back sessions um there's a lot of that going on and so that whole legend of you know stuart we got the photo of him with his back to the camera and then the legend just grows from there without any counterpoint from him of course yeah he wasn't allowed to
3: to speak about or he wasn't given the gift of time so that he could speak about it i have spoken Mm. uh, you know back around the time i met you back in the early 80s in liverpool i spoke to multiple people have them on tape somewhere of uh, who knew stuart and I remember one guy being pretty adamant about it, saying, you know, all of this he goes, he was he wasn't the best bassist, but he he could play, you know, it was and the guy reasoned to me, I think, on this tape. I seem to remember him saying, if he was that bad, he wouldn't have been in the Beatles for a month. They would have just said, Nah, it's yeah. not working out. It's not good enough. Right. And so Right. Um, and, and certainly Pauline would always stick up for him and say, Oh, that was a lot of bollocks, she goes, If if he was that bad, why there was a band I believe their name was the Bats. In Germany, that he also played occasional pickup uh-huh. gigs with the Bats, and I remember she used that as, and she goes, "Well, why would you, why would another band have allowed him to get up on stage and play with them if he just couldn't play anything?" Yeah. So she said he was very shy at the beginning and not so good at the beginning, but was, you know, a serviceable bass player. He was certainly not doing melodic bass lines like Paul would later do, but he was a rock and roll bassist.
1: The one I had problems with was Stewart we that was that was who i used to have the kind of ding-dongs with i say so i wish we hadn't because you know it wasn't me ousted him at all you know although i say we did have arguments but we weren't arch enemies really see because I, I claim that what i was trying to do was make sure we were musically very good but this did create a couple of rifts and i can see now how i could have been more sensitive to it but who's sensitive at that age certainly not me
4: we realized his limitations you know, he, he wasn't the best of bass players. There were, you know, lots of bad, be- you know, bass players around who were better than him. But you'll always get that. Um, but what people failed to realise was he gave two hundred percent. You know, and if you you know give two hundred percent of yourself on stage, it comes out in your music. You know, but he he wasn't as bad as people made out.
1: We had our sticky moments. We had a fight on stage one night, which I assumed I'd win because he wasn't that big. Yeah. But the, the but the, the the manic, you know, the the strength of love or something, entered into him, and he was no easy match at all. We just laid, we were locked for about half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God! Yeah. Oh, bloody God! Yeah. And they had to actually, I think, poured water on us in the end. You know. But uh, no, they had to sort of pull us apart. One of these real bloody teenage efforts, you know. And we were just, you know, very flushed after it and stuff.
2: Another aspect of the story, though, that surely also engages people is that this was a guy who was really invested in the group Right, You know, they brought him in, he spent his prize money on his bass guitar so there was some level of commitment there and he's a, you know, definitely a part of the group even if Paul wants him out and he gives it all up, not for Paul, he gives it up for love.
0: Stuart just stayed there because he decided to get the wry hearted with Astrid. They were
1: madly passionately in love and it was, it was a crazy thing. Great, you know, mad, passionate thing. So he was just going to stay, whatever happened. There was no way he'd come back to England with us.
4: After a while, when they were playing, the art crowd went bigger and bigger and bigger. And the students from the Lerchenfeld, it's called, Mr. Paolozzi was teaching there. And so they told him about Stuart and the band, and he said, oh, I come with you, you know, to see them. So that's what, how they met And then Stuart, a couple of days later, he went to see him at the art school and showed him some of his work. And he said, yeah, well, I want you to be my student. And uh, that was it. It was great being with John and George and Paul and Pete. But now I've got to do what I really want to do.
0: At that point, Paul was still playing a guitar. And I remember saying, well, one of us is going to be the bass player. And I remember saying, and it's not me, I'm not doing it. And John said, I'm not doing it either. He went for it.
1: So we were stuck without a bass player. So I, the last couple of weeks, when we knew he was going to stay, I played his bass upside down. You know, I learned, because being left-handed, you do learn to play things upside down. Mm -hmm. Because no one will ever change the strings for you. So I ended up, as I say, on
4: uh, Stu's Hofner bass. And, um... That was how I ended up on bass anyway. The biggest change to me was, and the one that was a shock, was when the band was only four people and Paul was playing the bass. I had to get used to that. Maybe the other people too. I never. I think, you know, most people didn't really go that far musically to really put the, pull the band apart. And, but for me, it was the music. And Stuart, to me, played such basic rock and roll, bass guitar, not even being able to play anymore because he only knew those few licks, but he played them so well. And Pete actually fitted in with his uh, playing perfectly. And that was a a sort of tightness and this rough, tough sound, which was sort of scratched on when uh, Stuart was gone. So I was uh, upset. When Stewart wasn't playing anymore.
3: As I said before, this is the John and Yoko story on Fast Forward. You know, uh, yeah. John also, you know, chose chose his uh, tie. He just enjoyed Yoko and collaborating on all those crazy
2: things they did. So you think you think that Stu and Astrid would have been having bed-ins?
3: No, I don't. But I think that they would have... <laughs> I, You know, if they did, I'm sure they had plenty of time in bed. I, I think Shit. that... Um, more that it, in the back of John's mind was that something you know he'd seen it he'd seen a guy that he really admired, give it all up for love you know and and collaborate. I think that uh, I think that had some impact on him on, on some level. and I have heard it said that he spoke a lot about Stewart with Yoko uh, you know in later years. It gave John the confidence that here's this guy that's he considered a great painter and John ended up in the painting department of the the art college only because nobody else would have him. And it was, it was one of the teachers, can't remember his name right now, one of the professors that was, you know, they were all pretty much set on tossing him out of the school, it seems like, until one of them discovered, and I don't remember if it was through Stuart, but it may have been, discovered John's private sketchbook with all the kinds of grotesque drawings and the funny little writings and stuff. And apparently that got passed around and the staff said, well, where can we put him? And uh, they tried to get him into the graphic design department, which in those days, I think they would call lettering and line drawing. And uh, no, that guy wouldn't take him. He's like, no, this guy's too crazy. So he kind of got into the painting department because he was friends with the best painter in the school, you know, on that strength. They couldn't figure out what, what the hell Stuart saw in him. But I think, once again, how crucial is that, that John stays in school? How crucial is it that the Beatles get early gigs through Bill Harry that pay so that they can continue to do this until they get good enough? That's all coming through Stewart. Uh, And I'm wondering if the first manager, you know, Alan, you know, Newt was very close with Stewart, as was his wife, Beryl. And I'm sure that was part of why Alan put up with them and arranged for Hamburg. All of this stuff is the ballet of life, as I like to call it call it you know uh enter stewart in uh james dean glasses stage left and for that brief period he was in their lives uh, it was huge and they never forgot uh obviously when they're doing the Sgt. pepper album cover stewart's face is in there and when they do the beatles for sale that scarf was stewart's scarf i'm told
2: yeah i mean it's alan williams book that helped bring him to life i mean Alan and his wife Beryl put up Stuart and Astrid in their house when she came over to Liverpool when you know, Millie Sutcliffe didn't want a German in the house. Yeah. Uh, you know, 15 years after the war. Um, so, yeah, there, there was a definite closeness there, and, and you pick it up in the book. You know, you, I mean, it's pretty heartfelt how he talks about Stuart in there. But what I wanted to ask you is. What was it about Stuart that first attracted you to him? And don't say, well, he's very polite. <laughs> oh, you stole that
3: one. Well, David Bowie has the best description of a spiritualist. He considered himself one as well. because he kind of salad barred a bunch of uh, religions and kind of cherry picked what he thought he could deal with. But David Bowie said that organized religion was for people who were afraid of hell and spiritualism was for for people who had already been there. Hmm. So um, my attraction to Stuart was I had an imaginary friend as a child that that was this cool guy and soft spoken and you know encouraged me to draw, you know, in my dreams or my, my hallucinations of this that my imaginary friend would help me draw.
2: Well when did you first hear about or read about him?
3: Oh, not until I was twelve. Right. and My imaginary friend. I was not having imaginary friends at 12. I was having hallucinations, but those were induced by other things, shall we say.
2: But why did you have this sort of immediate spiritual connection with him? What was it? Was it, you know, the photos, something about it and the fact that the guy was dead and there was this mystery? What drew you in?
3: It's when I saw the pictures of him and I said, well, wait a minute. I think the first picture I saw of Stuart was the double exposure one, you know, that famous one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was like, holy shit. That's that guy that's that my imaginary friend from when I'm three you know and and it's gonna sound crazy, but when i I speak with spiritual mediums on a fairly regular basis, I studied this stuff very hard to figure out why certain things uh in my life I could see happening th- stuff happening before it happened, and it was very confusing to me, starting from when I was about five years old and uh As soon as I saw that double exposure, I was like, well, that's my imaginary friend from childhood. And as I say, with different mediums, they describe a guy that looks exactly like Stuart Sutcliffe around me all the time. And I've always felt his presence. And when I'd see his picture, it just, oh, connect to that. Oh, I, I know this guy somehow.
2: Apart from that double exposure, is there another picture of his or other images that are particularly compelling for you that resonate?
3: I think the ones where he's out in the woods... That Ostrid took yeah. and he's sitting on the log and yeah. I was thrilled one without ever saying anything about it, Ostrid gave me a, a print of that. Um, you know, through um through Pauline. You know, we all had dinner one night. And yeah. um that was an amazing moment. It's a treasured possession of mine. Yeah. A really weird thing happened a couple of years, it was either a year or two years ago now, which was I woke up with this thing, like, I gotta go to eBay and see if there's any reasonably priced ostrich proof sheets.
2: As one does one when one wakes
3: up. Well, you know, it depends on what kind of stupor I wake up out of, but on that particular morning, that's what I was thinking. And I found one of some with some images I hadn't really seen before of Stu, and it, quite obviously it's near the end, because he doesn't look well at all. Uh, with today's scanners, you know, you can scan that thing and blow it up and get a decent image out of it, at least something you can t- tell what's going on in it. And so... You know, It wasn't cheap, but it wasn't too expensive. And I bought the thing. And the next day, I happened to have a session booked with a very good medium in, in the UK who we do everything over Skype. Um, I've, I'd met her in the US years ago and we'd had a couple of sessions, and she was just fantastic. So uh, she's describing this lady to me. She goes, there's this woman around you. She's all in black leather, and she's speaking a foreign tongue, so I don't really know what she's saying. But she's uh she's all around you and she's yabbering and she's got this close cropped silver hair. She's a very intense and arty looking woman. I have no idea. I wasn't putting the I wasn't thinking it was anybody because as far as I knew, Ostrid was still alive. Hmm. But what we find, but she's describing this one and I said, I don't know who you're talking about. And we move on to the next thing. Well, the craziest thing is a couple of days after that they announced that Ostrid had passed, but it was like five days after she had passed. So in in my spiritual belief world, that was the ostrid coming to me. <laughs> so you say, "Hey, it's me waving," you know. So uh, yeah. I just feel a very very strong uh, f- physical spiritual connection to the uh, to him, and um, I I think some of those images on that proof sheet I bought a year ago. Those are my other like it just it revealed fresh imagery of him to me. It becomes a little bit more alive.
2: I really me. like those photos in the park. I also like the ones that Astrid took, you know, at home. Oh, yeah, in the studio.
3: Him. The studio oh, pictures. Oh,
2: man. That photo in his studio, taken just months before he died, and then John posed in an almost identical position. And you, you juxtapose both of them, and it's just a really short time later yeah. that John's standing in that same spot, and that's haunting enough. And now to sort of know what happened to John, he died tragically. Yeah. You know, and so the whole thing, I mean, as I said, it's a whole slice of the Beatles story that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the music. It has has something to do with the music, as you said, but largely it's not. It, it's based on image and, and his paintings. And it's just amazing. Right. In this incredible story of the Beatles, which is it's just a, an amazing story. It's got everything If you made it up, you wouldn't believe it. you couldn't. Um, And and here you've got this enigmatic figure who we'll never get to see, or hear, most likely. And all we've got are these still images, mostly in black and white. And, you know, people's memories of him. It's just, um, and I said, this kind of whole mystique around him and his look and what he brought to the early Beatles and the fact that, He was involved in their look. I mean, those clothes that he wore as well. Oh yes, not just the leathers. That photo of him with the bare midriff with Astrid and Klaus. Yeah, I
3: think it was a Halloween party or something like that. I remember reading the circumstances, but yeah, he was he was fearless uh, when it came to that. You know, uh, uh, he was a small guy, and I'm sure he had to back some stuff up every once in a while. If people, I don't think people were as accepting of you know anybody with feminine dress on a man at the time. Right. You know, so he was brave enough
2: to do that. In Hamburg. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, you talk about, I mean, Liverpool's rough. Hamburg wasn't easy, was it, either? So what a thing to do, to be going on stage. But, you know, like that, you sort of wonder if he did get picked on, if they were shouting things at him.
3: Yeah, but he did it. And, and then also in some of those later letters that he'd sent back, you know, there's a couple where he has little designs for suits. You know, there's one with the collarless suits. Drawing yeah. in there, and uh, and of course he adopted a, a Beatlesque haircut at a certain point, right near the end. Uh, one of the the real haunting final pictures I have of him from that proof sheet, uh, you know, he does not look well, but he's kind of got the Beetle haircut going, you know, a sort yeah, of version. Yeah, he of does. It. And so he was. I think the thing for people, I, I I put this forth, you know, you think about guys like Jürgen, who was part of that scene, you think about Klaus, was part of that scene. And look how Klaus kept coming back into the Beatles' world, you know? Look how his, you know, he designed Revolver. Well, I'll bet you yeah. anything, anything that Stewart would have designed an album cover for the Beatles.
2: Oh, yeah. He'd have most likely been their in-house designer, right? I mean, would he have played a role at Apple? Who knows? But odds are.
3: I think he would have. John was obviously very loyal to all of those guys that he grew up with and cared about, and they all got some kind of job. You know, um, in Apple, and yeah, I think he would have. He probably would have been a college professor. He was kind of on that track. That's where he was heading. He was going to do a 50 year, I believe it was, and in, in Germany at that time, that would have qualified him to teach at university. And he would have been an exciting painter. I can see cross pollination with the Beatles as the pop art things exploding in the mid 60s. Uh, I just, I think, a whole dimension. Uh, we were never going to get to know what it was that it, that would have been so exciting. Uh, and they never forgot him. That's why he kind of creeps in, you know, to the Sergeant Pepper album cover or whatever. He was. They knew how important he was.
1: <laughs>
2: It's a real pity that you know towards the end of his life, when John was doing all those press interviews, radio interviews, that no one dug in about Stuart Sutcliffe.
3: Surprising, you know, it's
2: all it's yeah, it's all about the Beatles story and stuff, and John and Paul, of course, and writing the songs and the politics. But I just wish that John had been asked in depth about Stuart. I'm sure he would have answered. I wonder if he would have in depth
3: because I think when he was very very intimate with. Just about anyone except Yoko, who he he would obviously talk about. I don't think he spoke well. uh, I don't think he ever got in depth with about Cynthia. Yeah, but
2: do you think if John had been, for instance, asked even about Cynthia, you know, you know, how did you fall for a blah? Do you think he would have just refused to speak? John always answered the question.
3: He did, but he. I think he had the ability to give just enough to move on to the next subject. I don't think he was very comfortable about those types of things, and I think he would have. I think his relationship w- with Stuart was such that I, I, I think to speak uh, except in sort of periphery terms, I think it would have been hard for him.
2: I, I don't know. I think if he was asked, you know, about his, about Stuart's art, just about his paintings.
3: Now, I think, oh, okay, he would have spoken you know,
2: about that, of course. Yeah. And, and that would have been, you know, we don't have no. them doing that, right? You know, it's just like he was a great art, you know, oh, he was really good artist, blah, blah, blah. But we don't get anything in depth from any of them about him really, No, not, not, at length. not at length.
3: What interests me as a spiritualist who, who deals with trying to actively contact or communicate with people who are no longer in this dimension, one of the most fascinating things about that Andy Peebles interview, and I think it's on the rough cut, uh, not, not the final edited broadcast version, though it might be on that one too. But here he is almost hours away from death, and he starts talking about Jeff Mohammed, and how Jeff had saved his life, yeah. you know, it was like his bodyguard and all this stuff. That is very typical of somebody who is near the end um, in in the kind of studies that I do, because why is Jeff Mohammed in his head all of a sudden? And and so there's—I could go on for hours, and I promise not to about that, but that to me is a symbol— that they are gathering, and I'm sure Stuart was there as well, and I'm sure his mom was there, in, in and around him, getting him ready to kind of take him across the old Rainbow Bridge, and um, it, it's just that's the uh, that's where if I had been in the room with Peebles, I would have picked up. Oh, what are you, who else? Who else are you thinking about from the old days? Because he does mention thinking about guys from the original days in that interview, and he just mentioned name check Jeff, but he did kind of allude to others as well. What a pity that Peebles should have picked up and said, hey, tell us about those early days. Tell us about Jeff. Tell us about Stu Sutcliffe. Tell us about Alan Williams. Tell us about whatever, you know, um, uh, that was a missed opportunity.
2: John, I mean, as you said, yeah, he may have known when to move on to something else, but he was never a boring interview. John Lennon. Okay, so any question you're going to put his way like that, you could expect something back. You know, oh, yes. Of real yes. Worth. yeah. real was
3: Yeah, uh, he was always a great talker, if, if not always consistent. You know, sometimes he was in a bad mood, and as he would say, well, you know me, I could change my mind about that tomorrow. And, you know, But yes, I think uh, Stewart was uh, absolutely far more important to the Beatles than he's ever gotten credit for. I hope uh, we've
2: touched upon enough of that maybe that would make people
3: want to investigate him a little bit further.
2: Have you ever investigated the art side of things? I mean, again, I, I take it you're not a connoisseur. A corner and what? So have you ever, you know, spoken to an art expert about his art?
3: Well, I...
2: Obviously, no. <laughs> the
3: problem is it's a loaded question. Where, where would I have the chance to do that? I, I did that, you know, I spoke to a curator when he had the exhibition in Liverpool in 2008 you know, and they're going to speak all in glowy terms, you know, no one's ever said anything Mm. bad uh, that I've ever, you know, that in other words, that he, the only reason people are paying attention to this guy is because he he hung around with the Beatles. I don't think that's the case at all. I, I think that some of his earlier stuff, you can look at it and say, okay, this looks like a really good art student did it. As he got into that final period of his life, I mean, the most amazing stuff he did in his life were done in you know, 20 months. And that is really, uh, right. when they take into account his age and the, uh, the passion with which he was just churning this stuff out and it's getting better and better.
2: What well, didn't Astrid say? It was almost as if he had a premonition that he wasn't going to be around long and he picked he up did, the pace. But
3: this guy, you know, when I got to know Pauline, one of the first things I got to know, or we were introduced through, um, a guy that was, uh, a friend of mine, John, who, who, uh, Basically, his job was to help the British government spend public money on artists. And he always spoke, you know, he, he knew Pauline and he kind of owed me a favor. And I, he's like, how, how can I repay you? And I said, you know, I, I was having a good year. I said, I got some extra scratch. I'd like to buy a real Stuart Sutcliffe artwork. So the next thing I know, I'm getting phone calls from this woman, Pauline Sutcliffe. We were introduced by John and we got to know each other. The sheer volume... As When I first came to her as a customer and not a friend, and as it were, and she was sending me these, you know, oh, well, in the price range you have, you could afford these things and these things and these things. And it just kept coming. (laughs) And it was like, how much work did this guy do? You know, and and that was with just the prints and the collage work. Then you got into the paintings. And as I say, ladies and gentlemen, do yourself a favor. If there's ever uh, a chance for you to see those final black paintings... They are just amazing. They don't translate well uh, to, to the printed page or to a scan or to the screen. They must. It's just like that's the stuff that totally knocked my socks off. And I said, you know what? This guy is just as heavy as Van Gogh or, or you know, anybody.
2: Don't you see a darkness in those final oh, paintings? Oh, yeah. That's
3: the, I, that, if austin said the premonition, that's it. They, these are not happy paintings. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you can tell the yeah. guy there's yeah. so much energy. In the you know he was basically pushing the paint around with his fists, uh, and I mean it is it is definitely the desperation is there, but the energy is there and it, it grabs you. Yeah. Jim Dine once said you know the worst thing in the world is is when people look at your artwork and go ho hum, and he was speaking in reference to one of his one of his paintings. He did a series mm. of bathrobe paintings, and some guy with no previous record of mental issues or a, no previous. Uh, Crime, criminal complaint against him, at the tail end of one of Jim Dine's exhibitions of the bath bathrobes, he just went nuts and he pulled out like a knife and he just started slashing the canvas and screaming at it, and uh, you know Jim was upset at about it at first, but then after he goes, well, wow, you know that was a reaction to my art, you know I hope not everybody reacts that way, but. But that was a lot better that somebody went crazy because of his work as opposed to just kind of yawning and go out the gallery and have the wine and cheese or something. So you really do get this energy from that work. And uh, you can see what Lennon, from even these little scraps that we have of him, he does come to life pretty well. Yeah,
2: I, I totally agree. I mean, as I said before, I'm not an art connoisseur, but... You know, like when I went to a Van Gogh exhibition, and you look at the brushstrokes, and you can you can see literally see the manic energy going into this, and you see that also in in some of Stewart's work, without a doubt, as well. It is it's like a, a manic energy,
3: very similar. And, and and you both of us pulled up Van Gogh uh, because of the tragedy and the energy and the idiosyncratic work. Nobody's work that I can think of looks like Stewart's you know the early stuff is very derivative so so don't go look at his figurative stuff and say oh blah, blah, blah. but his other stuff is really really heavy like his monoprints I loved his collage work um, that stuff has a very interesting uh, yeah energy to it he just would have been a, a, a part of the Beatles story forever I, re- I mean he is part of the Beatles story forever because of his early contributions but I I feel like wow what would it have been like had he lived up until this present day and, and be able to do things you know, the way, uh, you know, Klaus did. Uh,
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always what-ifs, right? There's always huge what-ifs. I mean, but the big one for me is just literally how would he have felt just to see his mates become as successful as they did? Had he just lived a year, but certainly like two years even, and that would have still been tragic, but he'd have at least lived to see that. You know, it's just incredible that he had no clue He knew that they were growing in popularity, but they, you know, they they hadn't recorded, you know, yet for EMI. Um, So he had no clue and no one had a clue at that point, including them, how big they were going to be. So, you know, he just joins the ranks of Uncle George, Julia Lennon and Mary McCartney. Some of us of a
3: certain belief would say, well, you know, there was a big tug of war going on the other side and they're they're helping to drag these guys across the goal line. Uh, you know, from the other side. That could have been part of the influence, the supernatural influence of the Beatles. Yeah, uh, Stewart was certainly a part of that supernatural story. And never give up as far as, w- will we ever hear Stuart's voice? I believe we will. I believe there's going to be something that turns up. Because as you know, what I do all the, all the time is where I'm always searching and my friends that we all search together as a team, you know, there's a There's a bunch of tapes coming in in the next couple of days from an old EMI, the estate of an old EMI engineer, and there's some Beatles recordings in there that we just
2: can't wait to find out what's on them. I mean, if that first TV appearance showed up, you know, I mean, that would be amazing. It's entirely possible.
3: Eric. Yes. Yes.
2: Eric. (laughs) Come on, get researching, go digging.
3: I am digging. How do you know I'm not digging? I've, uh, you know, I've... I've looked into it, you know. You're not the only person urging me to do that. I
2: want Stuart's TV appearance and the Beatles at the Kaiser Now Get on with yeah, it.
3: Yeah, well, there's a guy whose name rhymes with Mark who asks me that stuff all the time, too. <laughs> Does that come up?
2: Well, I want to thank you for, you know, bringing metaphysics to the Beatles naked.
3: Wow. Yeah, more than welcome. It's uh, I know that it's a little bit... Uh, chance, you know, I'm sure I'll get a little bit of ridicule. I'm not kidding, by the way. I'm not uh, I'm not making that stuff up. I, I could go on and on from my experiences for hours and hours and hours. But, uh, hmm. you know, I got teased about thinking I'll get you in the end was uh, possibly a, a reference to a backdoor approach to sex. And uh, have you
2: seen that McCartney lyrics book? I know he endorses what you said. At the, I think at the end of the entry about I'll get you. He does say that there's a kind of sexual connotation in that line. And I thought, oh, my God, Eric's going to love this.
3: I do love it. And just for all you guys who are teasing me and all you people teasing me out there, take
2: that. Yeah, but you see, I don't love it. Do you know why I don't love it? It only encourages you even more.
3: When you serve it up on a (laughs) platter, (laughs) don't be surprised when someone takes it. (laughs) ¶¶
4: Production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow.